Hello, and welcome back to the Modernist Podcast. It's been a little while, and we're sorry for the short break that's happened, but I fell in the snow and cracked my ribs recently, and that's the reason that we've had a little bit of time off. But we're back now, and we'll have a slew of new episodes for you to listen to up soon. This episode, we're back with two fantastic researchers discussing the relationship between modernism and scandal. First up, we have Jamie Church from the University of Wolverhampton, and following her, we have Eliza Murphy from the University of Tasmania, which is truly exciting because Eliza is our first candidate from Australia. As Jürgen Habermas says, modernity lives by rebelling off the normative, and modernism is full of scandal. The kiss of Mrs. Dalloway, the lives and loves of the Paris left bank, and the flirtatious poetry of Richard Bruce Nugent, just to name a few. Today we'll be digging deeper into this scandal and examining a few different ways that it comes out in our participants' work. First, however, a big thank you to our Patreons, Rebecca Bowler, Molly Hall, Jenna Marco and Benjamin Smith. Your support means a lot and we couldn't run the podcast as is without you. If anyone else would like to support the Modernist Podcast, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash modernistpodcast. A further announcement, I'm on an episode of a brand new academic podcast run by Nathan Waddell at the University of Birmingham, who is absolutely wonderful. You can find it on the iTunes podcast app or online at SoundCloud, and it's the third episode of Critical Attitudes. You should give all of them a listen, though, because it's a really wonderful podcast. So without further ado, let's dive straight in. First up, it's Jamie Church from the University of Wolverhampton. Could you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Jamie Ellen Church and I'm a PhD student at the University of Wolverhampton. My supervisor is Dr Aidan Byrne and my research is on the writings of Zelda Fitzgerald. Great, and how did you first become interested in your research? Well, I first became aware of Zelda as a writer during my undergraduate dissertation on F. Scott Fitzgerald. I read Henry Dan Piper's F. Scott Fitzgerald A Critical Portrait, in which he dedicates an entire chapter to Save Me the Waltz. I was intrigued by what Piper had to say, so I bought a copy of the novel and completely fell in love with it. Zelda's use of imagery and her exploration of the ballet studio I found to be completely different from anything I'd read before. I tried to find out more about Zelda's writings but realised that not much has been written. Although criticism surrounding her peaks during waves of feminism, critics seemed more concerned with her life in relationship with Scott than with her work. I decided to do my PhD on Zelda's writings because she is a very engaging writer who seems to have been deliberately excluded from the modernist discourse. So can you tell us, who is Zelda Fitzgerald? So, Zelda Fitzgerald, naysayer, is the wife of author F. Scott Fitzgerald. She was born in Montgomery, Alabama in 1900, where she was a local celebrity because of her status as a Southern Belle. Upon her marriage to F. Scott Fitzgerald, she moved to New York, where the pair were celebrities, her antics in New York helped to gain the titles of First Flapper and Jazz Age High Priestess. Maintaining her celebrity status was easy enough as Zelda jumped into a fountain in Union Square, rode on the top of taxis and was spinning in the doors of the Commodore Hotel for half an hour. Wild as her behaviour was, as much as it fueled the gossip columns, the Fitzgeralds remained on the right side of scandal. Zelda was an enormously creative person. She kept a diary which was thought good enough to be published, as well as writing her novel, Save Me the Waltz. Unfortunately, all of this literary achievement is overshadowed by her mental illness. Zelda had spent a lot of her 30s in psychiatric hospitals. Her mental illness was linked to her wild antics, not only by her doctors and popular culture, but also by her peers. This has resulted in Zelda having the lasting reputation of mad wife. How amazing. And what about her novel, Save Me the Waltz? 
Save Me the Waltz is Zelda Fitzgerald's only completed novel, published in 1932. A very autobiographical novel, Save Me the Waltz follows Alabama, Zelda's self-styled protagonist, from her childhood in the South, her marriage to famous painter David Knight, into her career as a ballerina. Even though events in the novel seem to parallel events in Zelda's life, Save Me the Waltz offers the reader more than autobiography. Drawing upon her own experiences as a belle and a dancer, Zelda criticises the function of the belle in the modern world and demonstrates a change in attitudes towards ballet as social context changed and the artistic community was embracing modernism. Fitzgerald is most remembered for her dancing. This is probably due to the links that doctors and her peers made between dancing and her mental illness. To link ballet and mental illness, though, is to undermine how Zelda is able to use ballet to express ideas in her literature. Save Me the Waltz expresses ideas beyond the physical act of dancing. Zelda documents social attitudes which surrounded the dance which were dependent upon class and professional status. Being able to dance is a tool by which women make a mark upon society in the South. Zelda knew this from her own experiences as a belle. In Save Me the Waltz, Alabama performs Ballet of the Hours, establishing her as a belle just as Zelda was. Alabama is not admired for the effort which she has put into learning to dance, nor is she praised for artistic merit. The audience cares that she has made herself beautiful in their eyes. Being a belle is helpful because of the attention Alabama receives from it, but ultimately she finds that being ornamented is unfulfilling. The part of the belle is to marry and become a good wife. Now that she is married, Alabama lacks direction in her life and still seeks usefulness in men. Her husband complains that she couldn't always be a child and have things provided for her to do. By the time that she is in Paris, Alabama is unfulfilled by her life and craves purpose outside of the home. In the Society of Artistic People, Alabama is acutely aware of her lack of artistic credentials. Alabama returns to ballet in Paris in an effort to do something with herself, but also she falls in love with the dance. Taking up ballet provides Alabama with a new perspective and allows her to feel satisfied in herself. Concerns of fashion and superficial beauty are no longer a priority for Alabama, contrary to her southern upbringing where beauty was a priority. The strength displayed by her body is satisfying to her because it represents achievement. Alabama's enjoyment of the ballet changes from her childhood. The pleasure of dancing in her youth was its romantic potential and because dancing was a means to showcase herself. In adulthood, Alabama demonstrates agency through her dancing and finds the pleasure of ballet is in the obtaining of skills and the satisfaction of being competent in the technique. Entering the ballet studio, Alabama is also entering a woman-dominated space. The women in their learning to dance are not attempting to attract men as their primary aim. They are dancing for themselves. This is a rejection of the bell as Alabama has been brought up to perform for men and not for herself. Alabama's friends are not supportive of her practice. Miss Douglas said indignantly, I think it's ridiculous to work like that. She can't be getting any fun out of it, foaming at the mouth that way. Dickie said, it's abominable. She'll never be able to get up in the drawing room and do that. What's the good of it? Although not bells, Miss Douglas and Dickie are stuck in the traditional mindset that wives should be attractive appendages to their husbands. That they fail to appreciate Alabama's efforts demonstrates their shallow-mindedness and the reader is encouraged to feel contempt towards them and their attitude. When Alabama chooses to go to Naples in order to pursue her career, she is making another decision to reject the bell. Having danced her way into the, 
the gays. Alabama now danced her way out of it. Upon marriage, Alabama should have focused on the home, but the choice to move away to dance is a move from what she worked to achieve in her youth. A career, Alabama decides, will be more satisfying than the domestic role that her southern training has prepared her for. Such agency is an overt rejection of the bell. Throughout Save Me the Waltz, Zelda shows the bell to be of little use to a woman in the modern world. Ballet is used to parallel these shifting attitudes to a woman's place in society. Fantastic. Outside of literature, can you tell us about Zelda's other artistic pursuits? Zelda is well known for her passion for ballet. Her inclusion of ballet in Save Me the Waltz comes from her personal experience studying in Paris under Lubava Gorova, former dancer with the Imperial Ballet and the Ballet Russe. Much time and effort was put into her practice. Zelda even installed a ballet bar in their home. Zelda achieved proficiency in the art form despite coming to the dance in her 20s. Zelda was offered a position with the San Carlo Opera Ballet Company, but for unknown reasons never accepted the offer. The offer is a testament to the dedication Zelda had in learning to dance. Zelda almost certainly would have continued to dance for herself had her doctors and husband not decided that dancing was cause for her breakdown. When she was no longer able to dance, Zelda focused more attention to painting. Here she was able to channel her passion for ballet again. Zelda painted her dancers in a way to convey to her audience what it felt like to be a dancer. Zelda had a small exhibition of her paintings, which was attended by her peers, who bought the paintings. They admitted that she had talent, but the exhibition was not critically successful. Zelda's artistic skills were also useful at home. She would make paper dolls for her daughter, Scotty. These would be very detailed historical figures or fictional characters. Ah, right. And what might recovering figures such as Zelda offer modernist studies? I think that recovering figures such as Zelda Fitzgerald offers a new perspective on modernist studies. Zelda let her practice of one art form influence her others. The modernist community in Paris comprised of different people, not just authors, so it's beneficial to consider how art and dance were influencing literature and vice versa. Recovering Zelda helps with understanding how dance was influencing modernists. Not only this, but as Zelda was living among American modernists in Paris, it seems that considering her work alongside her male peers only serves to give a more comprehensive picture of that society. Thanks, Jamie. It's really wonderful to learn more about a figure who has often been marginalised in modernist studies. Next up, we have Eliza Murphy from the University of Tanzania. Could you actually introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Eliza Murphy. I'm a second year PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania in Australia. I'm supervised by Dr Naomi Milthorpe and Associate Professor Lisa Fletcher and my work focuses on the representation of parties and festivity in British interwar comic novels. And like Jamie, how did you become interested in your research? I wrote my undergraduate honours thesis on three interwar novels by Stella Gibbons and through that research I really started to notice that in her work Gibbons is just such a sharp observer of sociability and that really sparked my interest. So from there, I began thinking about how writers represent the ways that individuals interact and behave during social situations. And I started thinking about the party in particular because it's an event that's so defined by its elements. You know, it really requires uh, specialised modes of behaviour, appearance, food, drink, decor and so on. And as I read up on the previous scholarship on parties in early 20th century writing, I was finding that these specialised things weren't really being taken into detailed consideration in their analyses. 
and I thought this was a really big gap that needed to be addressed. And as for my interest in and focus on comic novels, I knew that I wanted to research something that would be fun and keep me entertained. And I thought, well, parties are fun and novels that make you laugh are always highly entertaining. So I have to ask, why the party? Um, I think looking at parties in texts reveals historical trends about a whole host of different concerns, uh, such as manners and wars, social expectations, appearance, and so on. And it charts the expansive affective landscapes of modern sociability. So from happiness and pleasure, right to um, anxiety, sadness and boredom. And I'm always reminded of Virginia Woolf's observation in her diaries, where she wrote about people having a number of states of consciousness, along with the frock consciousness, which I'm sure many are familiar with. She also included the party consciousness. And I'm really attracted to this idea that there is this specific consciousness associated with party going. And my work is interested in exploring that consciousness in more detail. So my thesis sets out to argue that Bakhtin's concept of the carnival, which is the most common framework for reading festivity in literature, isn't the best framework to be using for the 20th century party. In Bakhtin's theory, there's a real emphasis on the excessive, liberating and transgressive yet liminal qualities of communal gatherings and their ability to kind of invert or eliminate hierarchy, allowing for free and uncontrolled behaviour. But I think um, it's particularly important to recognise that Bakhtin sees the Renaissance as being the high point of the carnival. And because of that, I'm not convinced that this theory offers us a fully productive way to think about the modern party. After all, Bakhtin's assertion that hierarchy is left behind is not something that I think is universally applicable to all forms of festivity. So in a lot of the parties that appear in the early 20th century, um, it seems to me that hierarchy is actually ever-present and often reinforced, acting as a kind of locus for many festive anxieties. So with that in mind, I argue that we need to read the party as having the potential to be both inclusionary and exclusionary and what's more hosts and guests are not always fully liberated or able to be transgressive in their actions so parties do have consequences so my approach is one that considers the party as an event that's deeply tied to its historical and cultural contexts um, I argue that to fully understand how the party functions in literary texts, we need to explicitly acknowledge that it is an event outside of the everyday, something that does generate that particular party consciousness that Wolf identifies. It requires specific temporal and uh, spatial locations and specialised appearances, behaviours uh, and uh, re effective responses from its hosts and guests. So my project then is reading the work of my chosen writers alongside a variety of other interwar texts concerned with parties, uh, such as fashion periodicals, cookbooks, society columns and etiquette guides, in order to really explore the socially and culturally loaded meanings of the structuring elements of interwar festivity. Oh, wonderful. Which writers do you work on and why? Oh yeah, so this is an important question. Um, I'm looking at four writers in my research, E.F. Benson, Stella Gibbons, Nancy Mitford, and Evelyn Waugh. 
And I guess I chose these writers for three reasons. Um, firstly, I think they're all writers that have been critically undervalued. And uh, especially Benson, Gibbons and Mitford, they haven't yet received the scholarly attention that they deserve. Um, I'm really interested in recovery work and analysing novels that have previously been ignored or perhaps dismissed. So E.F. Benson's Math and Lucia series, which I'm looking at, for example, um, is a satire of domestic village life, and it's only ever really discussed by scholars in passing. And it's kind of dismissed for its triviality. And I think that's largely down to that long-held but thankfully now changing conception that the domestic and the modern can't work together. Uh, likewise, Nancy Mitford's early novels, published in the 30s, before her really successful work like uh, The Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate, are treated with quite a disparaging tone, even by her biographers. But these texts actually offer some really valuable insights, I think, into how a generation uh, that was old enough to remember the First World War but too young to participate in the war effort navigated the complexities of interwar society and sociability. So by looking at these writers, we can work towards a more complete insight into British writing of the 20s and 30s as a whole. And secondly, and I think this fits in with the theme of the episode, these writers can be thought of as kind of scandalous um, because they might not readily fit into the traditional frameworks of modernism. So Benson, for example, uh, was born in the 1860s and was writing prolifically on both sides of the turn of the century. Uh, or Gibbons has often been read by scholars as being a highly conscious middle-brow writer. So one of the questions in this thesis that I'm continually grappling with then um, is whether modernism is a productive framework for encountering the work of these writers. And finally, I'm interested in these writers because they all write comedy. And I think comedy as a mode in particular has lots to offer when thinking about parties. Because the comic mode is inherently social, uh, after all, it observes and polices human behaviour. It's an ideal genre with which to consider the dynamics of interwar sociability. So Benson, Gibbons, Mitford and War use parties in their novels to actively critique through laughter particular people, behaviours, concepts or even ideologies that they don't agree with. And as parties are social gatherings by their nature, I think they serve as an ideal site for these writers to assess the ways in which people behave and conform to certain expectations. So looking at the parties in these writers' novels involves thinking about, well, who or what is being judged here? Who is being shamed for not adhering to the rules? And what even are those rules in the first place? And how does the party function then? What's so special about it? I think first and foremost, um, that the party functions to reveal a whole host of different concerns. The greatest potential of examining the party is that because of its highly social nature, there's lots to unpack. Uh, so we can think about who is included and excluded along lines of class, gender and race. We can think about affect, uh, we can think about material objects, we can think about clothing and fashion and so on. And because of this, I'm finding in my research that for different writers, the party functions in different ways. Uh, so the nausea, inducive, kind of chaotic parties that appear in Evelyn War's fiction are very different and advance a different critique to the quite constrained and controlled, almost 
uh, fairy tale like balls and dances that occur in Stella Gibbons novels, for instance. But what I think makes the party so special is its sheer proliferation in the fiction of the early 20th century. So there's the dinner party in Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway, uh, the anxiety of an, attending an afternoon tea in Elliot's proof rock, Catherine Mansfield's garden party, and the costume ball in Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Um, they're just probably some of the most well-known examples. But what I'm finding as my research progresses is that non-fiction texts of the period are also really consumed by parties. So flicking through the pages of periodicals like Vogue and Good Housekeeping, there's articles on how to be a good host, how to be a good guest, what to pack for a weekend at a country house party, or suggested menus for entertaining. And there's also texts like Rose Henniker Heaton's Advice Manual, The Perfect Hostess, which I absolutely love, uh, which takes this rather tongue-in-cheek approach and provides guidance for a number of rather specific party situations, like what to do when the woman your husband nearly married comes to lunch or what to serve at your first studio party for your art school friends from the Slade. Uh, so across both fiction and non-fiction, you're getting multiple views and opinions on the value of parties. But I think what unites what can be quite divergent views about the party is that at the core, everyone's interested in behaviour. Questions about how people act and how they should act. So I think what makes the party worth studying at the end of the day is that it really brings to the fore and highlights the centrality of behaviour to the texts of this period. And to finish up, what can partying tell us about modernity? Firstly, I think the party in the forms that we know and recognise it as today can really be traced back to the advent of modernity. And I kind of characterise the early 20th century as being a period of party diversity, something which um, is captured so clearly in texts like Evelyn War's Vile Bodies, uh, in that famous passage where he writes about parties in flats and studios and houses and ships and hotels and nightclubs. So I think that parties can tell us um, about shifting understandings of the pursuit of leisure and pleasure brought on by the advent of modernity the increase in representations of festivity in literature uh, during the early 20th century in part reflects the increased amount of time for leisure activities in Britain. And that was aided by growth in real incomes and the introduction of a shorter working week. So during this period, you've got more people participating in sports, going to the cinema and going on holiday, and new forms of leisure being introduced, like dance halls and jazz. And I really like Roshona Zimring's characterisation of the First World War as being an acceleration of cosmopolitan modernity as a way to understand the new modes of sociability that emerged in the years immediately after the war, uh, such as the advent of the cocktail party, which has somewhat disputed origins but seems to have become a fairly recognisable and popular social form by the mid-1920s, and a flood of nightclubs opening, which generated more informal spaces for dancing, drinking, and social mixing. And in the fiction of the period, I think we uh, see these new forms of parties alongside older ones, and it really exemplifies the variety and diversity that is inherent to the modern party. So the party of the 20th century then, I think, is this really kind of chaotic blend of public and private planned and spontaneous, formal and informal. And likewise, with the writers I'm looking at, 
they all have really diverse takes on what the implication of the relationship between parties and modernity is. So for Benson, he kind of deliberately distances himself from modernity. While his characters are living in a 20th century world, their highly calculated and ritualised behaviour at parties is close to the 19th century. Whereas Gibbons, who has quite a strong middle-brow sensibility, really champions modernity for the opportunities for social mobility that it brings. And parties in her work are um, all about being a space where her middle-class heroines can transcend class. And then Mitford's novels critique the way that the aristocracy uses certain forms of festivity, such as Christmas celebrations and shooting parties in the Scottish Highlands, as an attempt to reinforce the class structures that modernity was threatening. And then War portrays parties as being nonsensical, these shallow events as a means to advance his critique of modernity as a whole. So I think the, the diversity of the modern party in turn generates a whole variety of attitudes and understandings. Thanks, Eliza. It's really wonderful to learn more about a social convention I thought little about in modernist studies. And it's really exciting to hear about the path that your research is taking. So finally, we come to the discussion portion of the podcast, where our panellists get to talk about their corner of the field, what it looks like and what their hopes are. I'll start by asking, what excites you about the field at the moment? Eliza, would you like to start? I've really been enjoying and I've really been excited by um, the recent work on the intersection between literary studies and periodical studies. I recently read Catherine Clay, Maria DiCenzo, Barbara Green and Fiona Hackney's edited collection, Women's Periodicals in Print Culture in Britain, uh, that covers the interwar period. And I was just blown away by its depth and coverage. It really addressed the diverse range of magazines that each targeted uh, different audiences according to class, politics, uh, hobbies and interests, careers and so on. And I would really recommend that collection to everyone. And I think that periodical studies has a lot to offer modernist studies and studies of early 20th century literature. I'm quite interested in questions about audience and reception and periodicals are a great tool for literary scholars both within and outside modernism to be using to explore these ideas. Um, you know, why did a particular writer choose that periodical to serialise their novel or publish that short story in? What illustrations accompanied the piece? What other articles and advertising appeared alongside? And how do those elements figure into understanding the text's overall meaning? And I think too that periodicals offer an excellent opportunity for investigating more non-canonical writers uh, such as the writers contributing romance fiction to working-class women's magazines. So yeah, I'd really like to see more literary studies scholars taking up some of the opportunities periodical studies offers us, because I think it generates really lively and fascinating scholarship. At the New Work in Modernist Studies Conference in Glasgow, and the year before in Leeds, there were papers concerning the female body, I'm interested to learn if other women writers discussing the female body in modernist literature, whether, like Zelda, they acknowledge the body's ability to produce blood, sweat, or tears, or if they only acknowledge a more sanitised, unbroken female body. I'm curious as well to know about the research being done around beauty, as Zelda is challenging stereotypes of beauty by having the athletic body of a dancer being her protagonist's ideal. I'm interested to know more on how other authors view beauty. Great, and finally, what boundaries do you still feel need pushing? 
Where would you like to see modernist studies going? Jamie? Being a fan of the Fitzgeralds as well, I'm looking forward to the centenary of this side of paradise. To me, Scott's earlier novels seem to be overshadowed by The Great Gatsby. I hope that with the centenary next year, that this side of paradise will have a resurgence. It was a bestseller when it was released, and I'm excited to know if people still feel that it's relevant today. And that Zelda's life had a legacy in popular culture today. So in my own research, I'm excited to explore how Zelda is influencing our popular culture, and if it is just Zelda the flapper that people are interested in, or if they are also influenced by her works. This is a great question, and I think my answer sort of gestures back to what I was saying previously. Um, I'm a massive fan of all of the work that is being done in the journal Feminist Modernist Studies at the moment, and I feel that a boundary that constantly needs pushing is the recovery of women's writing. We're all very aware of the expansion of new modernist studies over the last two decades, and that expansion, I think, particularly into the transnational, has been great, but I'm not sure whether that expansion has really championed non-canonical women's writing. I think a key question scholars need to be asking themselves when doing recovery work is whether modernism is actually the best framework for positioning that particular text or writer. Because modernism is now so expansive that um, I think it, it often tends to function as a homogenizing force. And in doing that, we run the risk of losing some of the nuance that individual texts and writers bring. So this broadness, I think, sometimes poses some problems for us. We often take the term modernism for granted, and I think it can be used quite loosely, and so often it goes without really being defined. And that leaves me wondering about modernism's productiveness for these marginalised, non-canonical writers. So I think that there needs to be more work by scholars following the vein of critics like Kristen Blumel and Phyllis Lassner, who are really pushing for alternative frameworks like intermodernism that are adjacent to modernism and that are designed to capture those writers, particularly women writers, who are left out of discussions or dismissed as lowbrow or middlebrow. Thanks, guys. And again, thanks to all our listeners at home, especially for sticking with us while we took a short break. We'll be back soon with an episode of Modernism in the Digital Humanities. Until then, 